Good morning. My name is Scott, and I have a new life in Christ. I'm recovering from pride and fear of man. In my time before Regen, my life before Regen, as it, you kind of put it into context, I was raised in a Christian home. I attended church every Sunday. I came to faith in the fourth grade. I was a safe sinner, but I didn't truly appreciate the depth of God's grace. I was afraid my knowledge and abilities were not good enough, and I was scared to make mistakes. Therefore, therefore, I was very guarded and hesitant to be vulnerable. Vulnerability was not something I sought out or even wanted. I felt my thoughts made me different, somehow not as good. During Regen, God showed me I am not terminally unique. More than once during our Regen small group discussion, I hesitated to share or be the first one to answer a question, and every single time, the person who spoke first expressed the exact same thought that I would have shared. So much for being unique. <laughs> Through this small group, I was able to marinate in the truth of God's word and grace and be open and honest with men I respected. Through the inventory process, I was able to take an honest self-assessment. When I fully comprehended that Christ died for me at my very worst, the depth of God's grace astounded me. And I began to see clearly the fact that God does not want me to have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of confidence and freedom through my dependence on him. After Regen, the story has not ended. I'm still in process, but God is faithful. He shows me when I put too much stock in what other people's opinions are or worry about things I have no control over. I feel God's urging to avoid old, old patterns this has changed how I approach difficult situations and has allowed me to be more confident and open in who I am as I live within God's grace. Through the region process, I gained eight brothers, seven in my small group and my mentor. And God allowed me to see that my thoughts and struggles are not unique. The level of vulnerability I experienced with these men is like nothing I had, I had experienced in 46 years of church. I was able to weekly encounter Jesus through my brothers. This level of honesty should be the norm and is needed. One of the Regen memory verses is 1 John 1, 7 through 9. Verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This really rings true. We must walk in fellowship with Christian brothers and be open and honest about our struggles. My name is Scott. I have a new life in Christ, and I'm recovering from pride and fear of man. Proud to be one of those brothers. Over the next two weeks, before we begin a new series in the book of Romans, which I'm thrilled about, we will be finishing up our summer series on life-changing encounters with Jesus. But we're going to bring it a little closer to home, as you saw this morning, by hearing from people who participated in a ministry that we've been talking about known as Regeneration. We like to call it Regen for short. Uh, Regen is a ministry that helps create a path for life-changing encounters with Jesus. Now, let me be clear, Regen will not change your life. 
No program will. But it will certainly lead you to the one who can. And you will hear from those this morning and again next week who will speak to that from their own personal experience. But whether you're involved in Regen or not, the reason I feel like it's important to speak to this is because the principles of this ministry apply throughout any ministry we do within the life of this church. Because every ministry is built around a certain context with a particular content. This week, we're going to begin by looking at that context, what I'm calling a compelling community for Christ. Because apart from that kind of community, this or any other ministry has no lasting impact in our lives. We're just playing church. But true Christ-centered community becomes the foundation for life-changing encounters with Jesus. But the content is important as well. Every ministry must be grounded in the life-changing truth of the gospel. So next week, we're going to talk about what it means to take a deep dive into the gospel. Because in the end, programs don't change people. Only Jesus can do that. So we want to begin by considering what it means to live in a compelling community for Christ. In order to do that, I actually want to take us back to something we talked about last week when we looked at the life of Thomas. And I made a comment that I would like to revisit again this morning. If you remember, we were talking about Thomas in response to the death of Jesus Christ. And you remember, Thomas was isolated from the other ten disciples, wasn't he? And so that when Jesus, the risen Christ, appeared before the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. I made the statement that I believe that Thomas was alone. That he was isolated in grief and despair. But that grief and despair, that profound grief was an evidence of his deep and abiding love for Christ. But to his credit, as we talked about, one week later when the disciples gathered back together again, we find that Thomas showed up. And I made this statement, and I want to repeat it again this morning because I believe it's true. I believe that Thomas knew that true healing must take place in the context of community. It simply would not happen if he continued to hide in isolation. And that point is what I want to revisit again this morning, and here's why. And I'm very passionate about this. Because I believe without a shadow of a doubt that isolation is where Satan does some of his most deceptive and destructive work in our lives. I'm convinced that isolation is where Satan does some of his most deceptive and destructive work in our lives. Just think about what you see in the nature films. I love watching nature films. And when you watch those films that talk about a predator and its prey, you'll notice that what that predator will do is he will try to chase one of those animals away from the protection of the herd. Because when he gets him alone, he knows that he can have his way. And, and that's why birds fly in flocks. It's why fish swim in schools. Is because there is protection in the group that is forfeited when they are isolated and alone. And what is true in the animal kingdom is just as true for humanity. Isolation is dangerous. But in the same way that isolation is dangerous, true biblical community is redemptive. True healing 
takes place in the context of loving community. It's part of God's design for the church. We were created to be interdependent on one another. From the very beginning of creation, go back and check me, Genesis, he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Never has been, never will be. So this morning, we're gonna talk about what it means to be a compelling community for Christ. We'll look at God's original design, and then we'll contrast that with the comfort-based commitment that we see in our culture. It's what we live and work and play around. It's all around us, and it help, can't help but influence us. So we'll examine what that looks like and then finish up by comparing that to the calling-based commitment that we have in the church. So before we do that this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, we know that you have a design for your people, that you created us with purpose and intent, and you want us to flourish according to all that you've made possible through Christ, but you know, Lord, that there is a specific content, context in which that flourishing must take place. And Lord, we want to live within that context to experience the fullness of what you intend. So would you open our eyes to see that more clearly this morning and and just prompt our hearts, Lord, stir us in ways that allow us to be more committed to those truths when we leave than we were when we came in. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, go ahead and turn to the book of Ephesians, if you would. Ephesians chapter 1. And as you're making your way to Ephesians chapter 1, let me give you a quick context for this letter. Paul is writing to a local church, much like ours, in the city of Ephesus. And he's reminding them of the riches of the blessings from God. He says, specifically in chapter 1, verse 3, God blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Just think about that. He held absolutely nothing back. God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. The heavenly reality of God's power has been poured out among God's people. And then Paul goes on to explain why that's true. And what's interesting is in the original text, starting in verse 3, going all the way to verse 14, is one long sentence. And I think Paul probably said it in one deep breath because it is filled with incredible truths. And in that one long sentence, I would summarize what he's saying this way. Paul says, you have been chosen by the Father. You have been saved by the Son. You have been sealed by the Spirit. That's the content of which all the heavenly blessings have been made possible for you. Paul goes on and he says, God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, it says that that God loved us and that that love was motivated by his redemptive work on the cross. Because we can only be blameless before God if we can stand forgiven by God. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God loved us. And that forgiveness that he has was made possible through the cross. We have been saved by the Son. Paul says that we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which has been lavished upon you. 
and our redemption made possible through Christ has been sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the security of your salvation, the assurance of your place in heaven, that place as we talked about last week that Jesus has specifically prepared for you, the security of your salvation is not in your performance. It is in God's promise. You have been sealed by the Spirit. You have been saved by the Son. You have been chosen by the Father. And it's on the basis of those profound truths of all that has been made possible according to God's kind intention towards us in his loving kindness and mercy that Paul then turns and prays for the Ephesian church. So let's look at that together in verse 15. Based on what he said in those first 14 verses, he turns and prays for the Ephesian church by saying in verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, of revelation, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is essentially praying for the fullness of God's power, all those heavenly blessings to be made known and fulfilled in the life of the church. And that prayer for the Ephesians and that local body of believers in that city applies equally to you and I in this local body of believers right now. He prays for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened in, in three specific ways. And I believe he begins by looking back to the past when he looks back to the hope to which we have been called. That's a past event. Paul describes it earlier in verse 13 as the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is the calling of God and an invitation to trust in him that is filled with the promise of forgiveness and of grace, the promise of reconciliation through faith in Christ alone. Paul is calling us to, to cling to the identity of who we are in Christ, that hope of calling made possible through Jesus Christ. But Paul knows and understands that we live in a broken and sinful world where suffering is inevitable. And so he looks forward and he, he points to something better. He tells us not to lose sight of our glorious inheritance in the saints. He's highlighting the fact that we are heirs of God, that we are co-heirs with Christ, so that everything that was accomplished by Christ has become a shared reward of his people. That's the glorious inheritance, to be fully known and completely loved in the everlasting presence of God. I got a fresh picture of this promise when I was reading earlier this week in Hebrews chapter 12. I don't want you to turn there because I just want you to listen. It's 
almost poetic to me when you listen to this scene being described in the heavenly places when, as we sung about this morning, we stand before in the presence of a holy God. Listen to how it describes it, beginning in verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and and innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkling of the blood that speaks better uh, word than the blood of Abel. I love that description when it says the assembly of the firstborn. That's us. That's the assembly of the firstborn. A gathering of God's people who have all received that blessing of the inheritance of a firstborn so that everything accomplished by Christ has become a shared reward for his people. He looks back to the past and that hope of the calling that we have secure in the promise of Christ. He looks ahead to that glorious inheritance reserved for us and prepared for us even now as we speak. But then he sandwiched in between those, he looks to a present reality. And Paul describes it this way in his prayer. He talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards those who believe. And don't miss how he qualifies that power and explains what exactly he's talking about because he makes sure that we understand that the power that he's referring to is the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's saying that power, That resurrection power has been poured upon the church. I want you to think about that. The fullness of God's power has been given to the church so that we might experience the fullness of Christ who is in all and fills all. Paul's prayer is for the complete fulfillment of what has been made possible in Christ. And when that fulfillment is made possible in the lives of God's people, that's how we become a compelling community for Christ. And so my question is, how do we know if that's true for us? How do we know if these things that Paul is talking about, if that that prayer that he has prayed is being lived out in the life of this church, how do we know if that's true? I believe we know it's true for us when we see the evidence of Christ's power being demonstrated through Christ's love. We know that's true for us. When we see the evidence of a supernatural love being lived out among God's people in a way that strengthens the church, protects the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, a self-sacrificing love that is filled with forgiveness and grace, not a self-serving love, like we see so frequently in the world today, a love of of consumerism where I'll love you as long as it's good for me. Where I expect the church to serve my needs and support my opinions. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about the humble love of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul is telling us that the church should be a sanctuary of God's presence in a broken and sinful world. A safe place where people like Scott can find hope and healing and restoration. 
A place of humble transparency where you don't have to hide or pretend. That is the context of a life-changing encounter with Jesus. But here's the problem. And I'll just tell you up front, it's a really big problem. The problem is, is that we have an enemy. And that enemy is literally hell-bent on doing everything he can to keep that from happening. And I believe that in our world today, our enemy is working overtime to disrupt the mission and intent of the church to the point that of all the issues, and we have plenty that we are facing in our world today, for me personally, there is none more concerning than our enemy's influence in the life of the church. Because without the church, there is no lasting hope for meaningful change in our world. Without the church, there is no lasting hope for meaningful change in the world. And our enemy understands that clearly. Satan knows if he can fracture the church, he can create chaos in the world. He's not worried about causing sinners to sin. We do that naturally. He wants to silence the saints. That's what he wants to do. So let me share with you one of the ways that I see that happening in our world today. There was a recent study done by Barna that came out uh, not too long ago. And the reason it caught my attention is because I had this kind of welling concern, and when I read the study, it validated that my concern was real. This particular study looked at the impact, of, in, our, in this case, of COVID-19 on the local church. And it did so by identifying Christians who said that faith was an important part of their life and that they regularly attended church. Now, what they determined to be regular is anybody who attended at least once a month. That is now regular in our culture today, but we're going to run with it, okay? People who said faith was important, and they regularly attended church. So they asked these people back in early May how some of the things that have happened as a result of this virus has impacted their lives. About half said that they were continuing to stream services, at least from their home, with their home church. And I think this is good. And, and I know many are still streaming services into the home even this morning. And that's good because people are doing what they can in ways that they feel comfortable to stay connected to their lo local church as it should be. Another 30% said they were streaming church services from a different church. Now, I kind of get this too. I mean, because if you could listen to Tim Keller or listen to me, I think it's an obvious choice, right? I get it. I understand. Different people do different things, and so that makes sense to me. But it's this next one that caught my attention. It says that over one-third of practicing Christians said they had done neither of those things. And in fact, they had completely disconnected from any church community altogether. Now think about that, people. One-third of the church has determined that it's just too much work to stay connected. Now, maybe it's just me, but I look at something like that, and I see the fingerprints of our enemies work all over it. If he can fracture the church, he can create chaos in our world. If he can isolate people away from the protection of the church, then he can wreak havoc in their lives. Why? Because isolation 
is where Satan does his most deceptive and destructive work in our lives. And as I said, this has become deeply, deeply personal to me in recent months and weeks. I've witnessed firsthand the devastating impact of isolation. The place where people get lost. They get overcome by this sense of of guilt and shame because they are being penetrated by the lies of our enemy who tell them that they're terminally unique, (laughs) that they can't get past something, that they're just gonna be this way for the rest of their life and they just gotta learn to accept it. And those are lies. They lose sight of the hope of God's calling, the ongoing work of God's redemption, forgetting about the inheritance and what it means to belong to God. I can't tell you how many conversations over the years I've heard of people coming to my office and their marriage is in shambles. Their family is destroyed and I'm asking them, when did this start? And they go back years and years whenever they started to live in isolation and stepped outside of community. And I'm looking at the results going, I'm not sure what we do from here. It's such a dark place when we no longer live in the light of God's presence, made evident in the lives of God's people. Let me say it again. Isolation is where our enemy does some of his most deceptive and disruptive work. Satan knows if he can fracture the church, he can create chaos in the world because the broken church is no longer a safe place for broken people. People become more protective. They become less transparent. If he can get us to hide in isolation, then he can wreak havoc in our lives. One of the reasons that the region ministry was so powerful in all of our lives is because of the walls of protection came down. We experienced the impact of compelling community in Christ. We learned that we needed to risk disappointing others by living in the light of God's acceptance. See, that's why Scott said what he did this morning. He didn't take the risk because of something in us. He took the risk because of what he began to learn about God's acceptance of him. And and as long as he's accepted by Christ, he doesn't have to live in the fear of man. Do you see that? No one had a difficulty or struggle that someone else couldn't appreciate. Like, like he said, no one was terminally unique. And as we opened up our lives to one another, we gave God ground to take new places in our lives. And he most certainly did. Compelling community became the context for life-changing encounters with Jesus. But this only happens, hear me on this, this only happens when we step out of our comfort zones and see our commitment as a calling. I think Paul speaks to this later in his letter to the Ephesians. If you want to look at that with me, in chapter 4. Listen to how he describes this in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writing says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy, here's the word, of the calling to which you have been called. Remember, he spoke about that in his prayer. Explains how. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
bearing with one another in love. Listen for community. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It says there's one body, one Spirit, just as we are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says to walk in a manner of the calling to which you have been called. And he describes that life as a a life that is oriented around that calling of God so that our decisions are centered around God's desires. It is a walk of daily surrender, of complete and unapologetic dependence. It's marked by humility and grace, he says, and, and patience and love. It's eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Because hear this, the church does not create community. It protects it. It doesn't create unity. That's a gift of the Spirit in a bond of peace. And we are called to protect what God has made possible. Where instead, we learn to live in love of one another. Living in this kind of community creates a a safe place for us to open up our lives. That calling-based commitment is not based on comfort. In fact, it risks comfort in order to show love. It's more like the covenant commitment that we see in marriage, where instead of adding conditions to our commitment, we remove them. That's why we take wedding vows in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor. What we're doing is we're saying, there is no condition to the clause of my commitment to you because I am vowing until death do us part. And Christian community has that same kind of commitment. There's no such thing as I'll love you if. This is a supernatural love empowered by Christ himself because it is the evidence of Christ's love in the lives of his people. An unconditional love filled with forgiveness and grace and self-sacrifice. This is a compelling community for Christ. And it is the place where true healing and redemption can occur. It is in this context that a life-changing encounter with Jesus take place. So with that being said, I'm going to ask Carla Pruitt to to come forward to describe her life-changing encounter with Jesus that she had um, during our time in Region this past year. And as she tells her story, let me encourage you to listen closely because her being up here is actually a part of what God has done in her life for her to even be willing to step on the stage. And I want you to be patient and kind as you hear her speak to the importance of community in her life-changing encounter with Jesus. So, Carla. Good morning. Those of you who know me know that speaking in front of a crowd is not in my comfort zone. And I'm here this morning because God has done an amazing work in my life this past year through Regen. And I believe he wants me to share what he's done. When I was presented with the opportunity to join the Regen Pilot Group, I knew without a doubt God wanted me to. I knew he had more for my life in him, but I was at a loss how to find that. I was emotionally exhausted and spiritually dry. 
That's what happens when you try to do life under your own strength and not the Lord's. My biggest fear of participating in Regen by far was being transparent. The thought of transparency truly terrified me. You see, I thought I had my life under control, hiding shame and guilt from my past and harboring a lot of resentment of wrongs done to me. I actually thought I was fairly good at hiding all this darkness in my life, and my go-to was isolation. I thought isolation was a safe place to not be found out, when actually it's a very dark place. Satan can and will wreak havoc in our isolation. I was exactly as Todd described a few weeks ago when he taught about Lazarus. I was a believer walking around in my death clothes of guilt and shame. God lovingly walked with me through the region steps and showed me that my control issue was really a heart issue of not trusting him. He showed me how by being transparent, it brought all my darkness into the light, freeing me from its bondage to be who God wants me to be. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Through Regen, God also revealed that I had an identity issue, meaning that I found my worth in what others thought about me. Again, God in his grace and mercy and unending love for me showed me that allowing others to define my worth was an idol. He sees me through who I am in Christ, completely forgiven and his beloved. God chose to create me already knowing all the sin I would ever commit. That's how much he loves me. By truly embracing my identity in him, I am free to love and forgive others the way he does. My region group was and is a safe place. I am not unique in my issues. That understanding helped give me a freedom to be transparent and allow the Holy Spirit to heal me and reconcile me to God. I don't ever want to go back to where I was before Regen. That's not to say I have all my issues conquered. It's a daily choice of complete surrender and dependence on the Lord. Some days I fail, but God has given me tools through Regen to help me and given me a loving, accepting, non-judgmental group of believers to walk with me and encourage me. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. My name is Carla, and I have a new life in Christ. I'm recovering from shame and guilt, finding my worth in others, and being in control. you've been around Melanie Park for very long, you're not surprised that I'm speaking about this topic. It is one of the most important to me. And you'll hear me speak to it again. Because I'm convinced that a compelling community for Christ 
is where God can do some of his most powerfully redemptive work in our lives. And if you're wondering why we're talking about Regen, one, because it's starting fresh and new this fall and we want you to know about it. But another reason is, is that our hope is that the testimonies that you've heard this morning and the ones that you will hear again next week give you an example of what we want to see infiltrate the culture of this light, of this church throughout um, our ministries. So that this kind of transparency and this willingness to share what God has done in our lives for his glory and our good would be stories that we're telling all the time because we are willing to live forsaking some of the risk required in order to open up our lives in safe places and see God do redemptive work. And so our hope is that this becomes a part of the culture of who we are at Melanie Park Church. I don't know if you've ever walked into a church, and I hope you increasingly see that as a part of this church, that when you step in, you go, man, this is a safe place. And I hope that that becomes uh, a, a way that people would describe being a part of this body more and more in the years to come, is that this is a safe place. So with that being said, why don't you stand and let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for the bold testimonies this morning from Scott and Carla and for their willingness to get up in front of this body, which is not an easy thing to do, to stand in front of people and share your story. And Lord, it, this is your story. They're sharing uh, a story of your work and their lives. And I just pray, Lord, that as our church family continues to consider what it means to be a compelling community for Christ, as soon as, as, as we consider uh, what it means to live a life that is um, centered on the truth, the life-changing truth of the gospel, that these are the qualities that would be the trademarks of everything that we do in this church, whether that's children's ministry or student ministry or region ministry or small group ministry or ABF ministry, that this is the culture of how we live life together because we're convinced it's the way that you designed us to live in community with one another for the praise and glory of your name. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for your grace and forgiveness that has been lavished upon us. May we live in that more freely. And we pray this in your name. Amen.